0: Welcome to Rock and Roll High School, in depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Our guest this week has one of the most unique stories in music. As an in-demand session guitarist in the 1970s, Jeff Skunk Baxter's career has seen him become a key member of two of the most legendary bands in rock and roll history, Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. With Jeff as a founding member, Steely Dan's first three albums created a fusion of rock, jazz, and stellar musicianship, highlighted by Jeff's guitar work on iconic songs like Ricky Don't Lose That Number. In 1974, Jeff joined the Doobie Brothers, eventually bringing in his pal Michael McDonald to sing lead, all leading to the band's biggest album, Minute by Minute, which spent five weeks at number one and led to one of the biggest songs of 1979, What a Fool Believes. Since then, Jeff has chalked up an impressive resume of studio work for artists ranging from Eric Clapton, Donna Summer, Joni Mitchell, to Dolly Parton and Rod Stewart, just to name a few. On top of all that, Jeff is also a ballistic missile defense specialist and a counterterrorism expert who works as a consultant for the U.S. Department of Defense, shattering the stereotype of your typical Rock and Roll Hall of Fame guitar player. NPR has called him the most interesting man in music, and as you'll hear in this interview, his work in both music and defense makes him extremely unique indeed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. I am thrilled today to welcome our special guest, Jeff Skunk Baxter. Jeff, welcome to Rock and Roll High School.
1: Well, thank you for your hospitality. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's it's so interesting, your life and your story, and we don't have a ton of time, so we're going to try to get as much of it baked into one hour as we can, but I would love to start by referencing a piece that came out last week on NPR with an interview that you gave for the World Cafe. And NPR World Cafe referred to you as someone who might be, quote, the most interesting man in music. And their article summons up like the voice of a movie trailer. As a narrator, and think movie trailer narration for a second, and I'm going to read this in my best movie trailer narration voice. (laughs) He's a rock and roll Hall of Fame guitarist who took up a side hobby as a ballistic missile defense specialist and added counterterrorism expert for good measure. So with that in mind, welcome, (laughs) Skunk Baxter. So we're here primarily to celebrate the release of your first solo album, a solo album that came out june seventeenth, twenty twenty two, but was actually thirty-three years in the making. So more or less. How does it feel to finally release your first solo album?
1: It's great. I mean, what can I say? It's like the first time you're driving down the street and you turn on the radio in your car and you hear one of your songs on the radio. It's well, delightful doesn't describe it. It's very fulfilling. It's kind of the last thing on my bucket list, musically.
0: Well, I would love to kind of kick off our multimedia portion of today by playing a little bit of Jeff's great version on his new solo album, Speed of Heat, his version of My Old School. Can we cue that up and, and listen to a bit of My Old School? Fair. Well, the guitar is unmistakable but not a lot of people have heard you <laughs> sing like that so what, what including like me it, <laughs> what was it like saying okay i'm gonna actually get in the front of the microphone and sing
1: well it kind of wasn't my idea i'd given steven tyler a call and sent him the track and did a scratch vocal i said steve uh, you know here's a scratch vocal just so you get an idea and he said well who's singing it and i said well it's me, but I'm just doing that. So you get an idea where, you know, everything falls and he goes, well, why don't you sing it? I said, cause I'm not a singer. You know, when you're in bands with people like Linda Ronstadt and Michael McDonald and Elton John, you, I'm a guitar player. So he said, well, what the hell? It sounds good to me. Why don't you sing it? are you kidding me, Steve? Come on. And he said, no, take a shot. So, okay. And you know more about this stuff than I do. So, okay.
0: Well, that's not the only song you sing on on the album, so the album is filled. It is. It oh, is. It is the only song you sing on?
1: That's oh, I, it. I didn't realize that. No, because we again, we have great singers. Well,
0: well I know I you have Johnny Lang and Mike McDonald and Clint Black, but I didn't realize, bad on me, for not realizing that was the only lead vocal you did.
1: Tay absolvo. <laughs>
0: you know i did listen to an incredible version of the rose that you do on the speed of heat album and that is sung but it's sung by the voice of a pedal steel so yep. you know completely different vocal on that
1: well thank you for that by the way i i think the pedal steel has such a beautiful voice and i don't think anybody's ever done an acapella if i might use that term just pedal steel with nothing else. And the first verse is that I just wanted people to hear how beautiful the voice is. And especially since I did that track to honor my father, right. uh, I wanted to be able to speak in the best voice that I knew how.
0: Right. I heard an interview that you gave where you said that there were tears on the steel with you really paying tribute to your dad on that. And obviously, pedal steel is normally used as an accent. So to hear it as a cappella, as you say, as the solo voice is something that everybody should listen to on on Jeff's terrific solo debut album, Speed of Heat. But I would love to back up because obviously you're a two-time Grammy winner. You are a founding member of Steely Dan. You were part of the iconic mid to late 70s lineup as a member of the Doobie Brothers. You won two Grammys, as I said, as a member of the Doobie Brothers. You're a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then you have this side hustle, which is unique to anyone that we've ever interviewed on this program that I'd like to get into as well. But let's back up to the beginning. You were born in D.C.
1: I don't know if if my commanding officer said it that I was on a, doing a side hustle. I don't know. To it, but I do, I do. I understand what you're saying.
0: How about two jobs?
1: I remember when I was a kid, there used to be this board game called careers. I used to play it all the time, but the rules said you could only have one career. And I told my friends I wasn't going to play unless I could have as many careers as I wanted. I think the whole concept of a career certainly helps on some level helps other people define you, but a career is a pathway. And I would posit that there are multiple pathways to get to the the same result or multiple pathways to give you a multifaceted, in-depth, different point of view on what you do. So I think it's imperative to have multiple careers.
0: Right. So you don't see yourself, if someone says, hey, Jeff, What is it that you do? You can't really answer that simply in one sentence because you do a lot.
1: Well, I see your point. I guess what do I do? I try to interpret life with the best tools that I have, and I try to learn as much about life with the best tools that I have.
0: That's a great answer. Let's start at the beginning. So you were born in D.C., but you moved to Mexico City for your dad's work. And your dad was, for lack of a better comparison, your dad was Don Draper, like an ad man for J. Walter Thompson, right?
1: Without the issues, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it was but, f- yes. but it was from your dad's record collection that you started experiencing and discovering music, right?
1: Well, certainly it was a major part of it. Radio, when I was a kid, I listened to you know radio when I was a kid, and yes, between my mother. Giving me and allowing me to take piano lessons and my father's record collection, you're right, it was pretty eclectic.
0: And then for your ninth birthday, I read that you asked for a bicycle and you didn't get a bicycle. Instead, they gave you a guitar and you were not happy.
1: I was pissed off, yeah. So (laughs) I I hung it on the wall. And then a buddy of mine, Kurt Bundy, lived downstairs in one of the apartments downstairs said, hey, I just started taking guitar lessons. I see you have a guitar. If I show you some chords, maybe we could play a little bit together. I said, "Ah, all right. So I pulled it off the wall. I don't know what happened. Sort of that was that little orchestral stab that happens when you come to some realization. I said, yep, this is it for me. I, I love this.
0: And were you in Mexico City at that point?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And how old were you when you and Kirk started fiddling around together?
1: About nine, nine or ten, yeah.
0: And I read that one of your first influences as a guitar player was the great session player from the Wrecking Crew, Howard Roberts. Yes. When do you remember hearing his playing?
1: A DJ friend of my dad's from Washington used to send my dad boxes of records in Mexico. And two of the records that he sent, and this is, again, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, were two albums by Howard Roberts, Color and Funky and H.R. is a Dirty Guitar Player. And when I listened to those, my jaw dropped because I'd been listening to other guitar players. I was a big Ventures fan. I even was a member of the Ventures fan club when I joined when I was 11 years old. So I guess all this is happening around when I was 11. And I just it blew my mind. That to me was everything that I thought a guitar player should be. Wow. And we became friends later on in life. We actually worked together at the Guitar Institute of Technology. We became good friends. His son, Jay, who is a killer player, is a good friend of mine. And I remember Howard was such a brilliant technology guru as well. I've been working with a company called Roland for about now 48 years. And I was one of the people on the design team for the first guitar synthesizer. And I remember I gave one to Howard Roberts and... like lighting dry grass it's unbelievable Uh, just incredible so howard influenced me both as a guitarist and as a friend
0: well it's amazing that you could pay it forward where his playing influenced you at such a young age and then you become friends later in life same thing you mentioned
1: like the the ventures right you
0: mentioned the ventures same thing later in life you end up working with them
1: yep a lucky guy
0: so You're going to school in Mexico, and your dad didn't like the education that you were getting, and so he suggested— that you go and start meeting some schools stateside, back in the States, that were prep schools. And you eventually interviewed and were accepted at Taft. And that started this commuting for you between Mexico City and Connecticut. That's also fairly unique. You're not really hearing that a lot from people we're interviewing on this program. What was that experience like?
1: Well, one thing that stands out is in those days when you got on an airplane, you wore a coat and tie. I always thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> so I put on my, my coat and tie and got on a 707 and flew to, uh, to New York and then took the train to Connecticut. It was a great experience because growing up in a foreign country and playing, I was playing a lot with Mexican rock and roll bands. My buddy, uh, Abraham Laboreal, the bass player, we had a surf band together when we were kids. There was a lot of music going on, great guitar players, great drummers. So I'm glad I was in Mexico City, and I'm glad that I had that eclectic musical experience. But going to the States for, I guess you would call it, my high school education allowed me an opportunities as well to spend some time in New York City because going back for short vacations was expensive flying back to Mexico City, so sometimes I would just stay in New York and ended up working in some of the music stores on 48th Street. Right. And playing clubs.
0: Right. And that those experiences at Jimmy's and, and Dan Amst- Armstrong's guitar shop on 48th yeah. Street, those experiences really changed your life and propelled you into the professional realm of being a pro musician. I found it really interesting that the names of the people who were just became part of your everyday life as a teenage kid working at these guitar shops, you worked alongside of Randy California from Spirit. You had encounters with Jimi Hendrix in the early 60s when he was still... Call Jimmy James. When you eventually worked at Dan Armstrong's, guys like Mike Bloomfield and Frank Zappa would come in.
1: Don't forget Sam Brown and Eddie Deal. I mean, Eddie Deal is the best bebop guitar player I've ever heard in my life.
0: So everybody is walking into these guitar shops, and you probably don't even realize at the time that this just doesn't happen every day, and this is happening to you.
1: Yes, I didn't really sit back and go, oh my God, what's happening? Basically, Danny... When I was working up at Dan Armstrong's, he handed me a Gretsch Tennessean with two bass strings and four regular strings. And he said, here's your job. You're going to play rhythm guitar and comp bass lines for me and Eddie and Sam Brown and all these unreal guitar players that came in to hang out at the shop. So it was an interesting experience, number one. The only other guitar player I ever met that did that was when I did a video with Chet Atkins. And his rhythm guitar player was just messing around one day, comping some chords and bass lines. And he goes, Where'd you learn to do that? And I said, Well, from Dan Armstrong. And so he started doing the same thing. How, oh, how funny. And oh, well, my God. I, I've never, you know, it's just something that I don't hear a lot of. And so right away, the learning opportunities for being at Danny's place was phenomenal, but you're right. I never really thought about it. Again, my job was, hey, Eddie, Eddie wants to do How High the Moon. Okay, B-flat. Okay. And then I had a stack of fake books so that I could, oh, okay, there we go. Wow. And uh, learn all these things as well.
0: Well, I love the story that one day a left-handed guitar player walks in and says, hey, I've got this duosonic guitar. And you ended up converting it from right hand to left hand. And that was Jimi Hendrix.
1: Well, actually, yeah, he had a beat up Sonic, and he wanted to upgrade, get a better instrument. And I had done some custom work on a Fender Stratocaster that was strung up for a left handed player, even though it was, you know, but strung up right handed. So I just done some mods. And so I said, well, OK, try this. And he really liked it, so I traded him even for it. Got my ass kicked and uh, th- docked three weeks' pay for making what the guys at Jimmy's, Jimmy and Frank, said was a not smart business deal. It's okay, you know. <laughs> it, it opened a door, and I made a pretty good friend. Yes, you're right, Jimmy James. Jimmy I think he would just come right. back from playing with Joey D and the Starlights, I think. Right. Yeah.
0: And Les Paul would come in all the time too, right?
1: He would come into Danny's place.
0: Talk about the best of the best of the best. You know, it's probably just inspiring, even if you're not realizing it at the time, as a player yourself, the inspiration that is just going to come via osmosis from all of these people in the same orbit.
1: Right. I would say that Dan Armstrong's shop was the MIT of the College of Musical Knowledge.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good segue, because MIT is located in Boston. And That's right. you end up going to college in Boston at BU. You start at another gear shop, not guitars this time, but you start working at Jack's Drum Shop in Boston.
1: Yes, both Jack's Drum Shop and Dave Schechter, who eventually formed a company called Schechter Guitars. Dave and I had the Burbank Street Guitar Repair Shop, where we built and customized and repaired guitars. And... Eventually, I did end up at Jack's Drum Shop.
0: And how long did you last at BU? A year. <laughs> I, I read that you took a leave of absence and you're still on it.
1: As far as I know, <laughs> uh, it, it, unless a fungus has eaten my my records, uh, maybe I should give him a call You know, and say, hey. You know?
0: And you joined a band called Ultimate Spinach, who basically poached you from Jack's Drum Shop, right?
1: Uh, yes, that's true. That's true. Although I was playing with a couple of other bands. I was playing with the Holy Modal Rounders, right. which had to be the most fun band in the history of the universe, and was also playing some bass for Tim Buckley.
0: Wow. Well, Tim Buckley, obviously famously the father of Jeff Buckley. The name Holy Modal Rounders may not be familiar to a lot of our listeners. So you've been quoted saying that that was some of the most fun you've ever had in your life playing
1: with those guys. Yeah, because two of the members of the band were the original members of the Fugs. Uh, Pete Stample was in the band. (laughs) Of course, when you're doing songs like, you know, deep musical compositions like Boobs a Lot and (laughs) and Dirty Old Man, which were actually huge jukebox hits in uh, Eastern college dormitories and campuses it was just more fun than I could stand because the whole idea was just to have a great time
0: well you know that's why a lot of people one of the reasons a lot of people get into music yeah and then talk about meeting Gary Katz because when you met Gary Katz things kind of went into overdrive for what was about to happen so talk about meeting Gary for the first time
1: well, I, was, I spent a lot of time in a studio called Intermedia Sound on Newberry Street in Boston. I wasn't the house guitar player, but if you hang around long enough, people always go, hey, uh, you need a guitar part to ask this guy. He's so I was doing a lot of work there, and I was commuting back and forth to New York to do sessions as well. And Gary Katz was in the studio at Intermedia producing a band called The Bead Game. Wonderful Boston band. John Sheldon, the guitar player, great guitar player. And I guess Gary had heard me play, stuck his head into a session I was doing, and asked me if I would be willing to go to New York to work on a project that he was producing, a a wonderful singer-lady songwriter called Linda Hoover, who I think finally got a chance to release her record not that long ago. Talk about 33 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably longer than that, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, 50 or 60 years. And he said, would I come down to New York? I said, yeah, well, I commute a lot. So I went down, and the two songwriters who were supplying the bulk of the material were Walter Becker and Donald Fagan. And after we had finished the project, they said, we've never really heard anybody play guitar on this music like this. And I said, well, I've never really heard any music like this. It's pretty (laughs) impressive. And so it became, okay, whoever passes go first calls everybody else. So Walter Becker and Donald Fagan followed Gary Katz out to Los Angeles to fulfill a publishing deal at ABC Dunhill Records that Gary, I think, had set up. And as soon as that happened, the call went out, OK, let's form a band. We didn't have a name. We weren't sure whether to call it Big Nardo in the eighth grade or Steely Dan. But Big Nardo in the eighth grade was we thought the name was too big to fit on an album cover. so <laughs> I was stealing in. But that's kind of how it all happened.
0: Well, I heard you tell a story about how they were setting up in the offices of ABC as writers, and they forgot or didn't care about breaking down their gear one night. And then kind of—can you fill in the uh, story after that?
1: Yeah. Jay Lasker and Howard Stark were the president and vice president of ABC, Dunhill. And we were rehearsing in Jay's office. And usually, yeah, we'd rehearse and we'd clean up, take stuff out. One night, I guess we just, I don't know, too many beers or whatever. Jay calls Gary and says, what the hell is this? And Gary said, well, we have this band that was rehearsing. and Maybe you should listen to them." And Jay, the ultimate consummate record guy, Big Cigar, all right. Let's hear it. And we played a couple of tunes and he said, all right, okay, I'll sign it. So that's kind of what happened.
0: So it was kind of a happy accident because nobody was really trying to get a record deal, right?
1: I think on some level in Gary's head was an idea to morph the publishing deal into some kind of a record deal. But this kind of moved things along a little quicker. And by the way, I know we don't have a lot of time. But people malign the record industry and the people. And I just want to say that Howard Stark and Jay Lasker, when I got the opportunity to play with the Doobie Brothers, I went to Howard and Jay and said, guys, I got this incredible opportunity. Would you let me out of my contract? I'm just a naive schmuck. I didn't hire a lawyer or anything. And Jay sat back, you know, skunk, you never lied to me. You're always straight ahead, reached into the desk, pulled out the contract, handed it to me and said, good luck, buddy. Wow. I'll never forget that. And that's why I went to see him when he was in his last days. People like that who come into your life and show what they're really made out of, you need to acknowledge people like that. So Howard and Jay, wherever you are, Whatever big mahogany desk you're up behind, <laughs> or wherever it is, whatever deal you're making. I love you very much and thank you. Thank you so much. And Mo Austin did the same thing when I left the Doobie Brothers. Wow. He said, I said, I have all these opportunities. He said, you know what? Go for it.
0: Wow. Some of the great record men of all time, and obviously we recently lost Mo, and coming to you today from the studio of Atlantic Records, which is part of the Warner Music Group, Warner Brothers and Mo Austin have played such an integral part of the fabric of this company for so long that it was a big loss here. But back to making these records for the newly named Steely Dan produced by Gary Katz, (laughs) the first album that you guys did for ABC Records, was Can't Buy a Thrill in 1972. So it was Walter, it was Donald, it was yourself. And who were the other members of the band at that point?
1: Wonderful guitar player, Danny Diaz, who was a friend of Walter and Donald's. The drummer was the original drummer from Beat Game, Jimmy Hodder. Wow. One of the most underrated drummers ever on the planet. A great singer, by the way. He sang the original single for Celly Dan, which was Dallas. And he sang on a number of the cuts on the first album. And David Palmer, who was a singer in a band that I knew from New York, wonderful guitar player named Ricky Phelps. And so when they were looking for a lead singer, I suggested David. So that was the lineup.
0: Right. And David famously is the lead vocalist on Dirty Work, right? Ooh,
1: yeah. And Pearl of the Corner. Right. I mean, wow. Usually
0: when you think of a Steely Dan vocal, you think of Donald. But it's nice to know that there were a bunch of really great guys in that band who could do a lot of things. Can't Buy a Thrill, the debut Steely Dan album in 72, famously big, big, big songs, Do It Again, Reeling in the Years, followed by Countdown to Ecstasy in, in 1973, and I'd love to cue up the song Bodhisattva from the Countdown to Ecstasy album, and you talk about Denny Diaz, and they are really two gunslinger guitar players here kind of going, Denny does his thing, you do your thing. Let's hear a little bit of Jeff's thing on Bodhisattva from Countdown to Ecstasy and Steely Dan.
1: gets a little thermonuclear
0: (laughs) and then the third and the last studio album that you made as a member of steely dan was pretzel logic and while we have this great playback going let's hear a little bit of jeff's amazing solo on ricky don't lose that number great to hear that oh thank you do you have fond memories of those sessions i do i do there's a
1: lot of mythology some of which you know is based in fact that walter becker and donald fagan were how should we say tough taskmasters and being a studio musician i actually didn't have a problem with that i think you start with the quest for perfection and work your way up so most of the memories that I have were fun. It was a lot of fun.
0: We were just kids. Right.
1: We I mean, didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, I was out doing sessions for other people, but I was still just a kid. You know, I didn't know about this band, Steely Dan. Because it took our best shot. I was out on the road playing with Linda Ronstadt. Right. Playing Pedal Steel.
0: Right. But back then, Steely Dan was more of a traditional band in terms of recording and touring than they later became. Yeah. So you were actually on the road with Steely Dan as a band member going out on tour, and one of the tours that Steely Dan did was with the Doobie Brothers. So you started meeting those guys and sitting in, first one song, then a couple (laughs) of songs, then more songs, and eventually, I think it was at Nebworth, where you got a call from Walter Becker saying, hey, we're not going to tour anymore.
1: Right, that's correct. So I hung up the phone and said, well, that's kind of it for me and Steely Dan because I, I enjoy touring. And the Doobie said, well, now you're in the Doobie Brothers.
0: So you went from a two-guitar attack in Steely Dan with Denny to a three-guitar attack with Tom and Pat in the Doobie Brothers, right?
1: Yes, and there are probably a number of people would say, well, how the heck can you do a musical three-masted schooner? What was very interesting is all of us Myself and Tom Johnson and Pat Simmons also had a tremendous amount of respect for what I think was one of the greatest rock bands in history, Moby Grape. Right. And they had done a beautiful job of interleaving three guitar players.
0: There were also two drummers in the doobies. So there's a lot going on on that stage.
1: That's correct, including me, because (laughs) for for a long time, John Hartman, who just passed away recently, wanted to play percussion. So I ended up playing drums for a few songs in the show so that he could go out and play percussion.
0: Wow. You also made the Doobies tighter as a band unit because you made the band play session gigs with an unforgiving 8 a.m. downbeat. You want to talk about that?
1: Well, I didn't make them do anything. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I sound like, like a drill instructor. No, <laughs> I thought that it would help especially as we began to mature with Michael McDonald, when I brought Mike into the band, bringing a keyboard player and bringing keyboards into a band changes the dynamics of an all guitar band. And I thought, okay, these guys are really great musicians. I think that they're better musicians than they have had the opportunity to demonstrate. So being a total session slot myself, I thought, OK, how about we do some sessions as a band? And that will tighten everybody up, give everybody a different perspective, uh, help tighten everybody up and help them work as a unit in a slightly different manner. And yeah, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, downbeat, producer doesn't care what band you're in, how long your hair is and, you know, what big rock star you are. Downbeat, 9, play it right or you're fired. Right. Thank you next
0: that ended up making the band tighter as a unit
1: absolutely there's no doubt about it not to mention giving everybody in the band opportunity musical opportunities that they would have never had right and because of their deep talent as musicians them being able to leverage that and take advantage of that adding to their eclecticism experience whatever the words that you want to use I do remember we were working on Living on the Fault Line, which is a pretty amazing album, I think, with the Doobies. I think that is the album that helped transition into Minute by Minute. Keith Knudsen was listening back to one of the tracks that said, I dropped a snare drum beat in bar 51. (laughs) Bingo. You got it. Now you you got it. There you go. Now, I wasn't, this is not impugning or in any way, shape, or form denigrating the musicianship of the band, basically what I'm saying is their capabilities were deeper maybe than they even thought.
0: Right. And your suggestions helped bring that out of them. What were some of the sessions that you guys did as a band unit being session musicians you know, just name a couple first that come to your head, because obviously there are going to be records that everybody knows, but not everybody is going to know who's playing on them.
1: Well, I think we did, and I'm trying to remember back, I think we did some work with Leo Sayer. Uh, we did some work with Carly Simon, because Ted Templeman was producing, and he saw that the band was starting to do some session work. Hoyt Axton, say i got a tweak in my brain here to to remember the different folks that we work with. Yeah, I mean,
0: with. it's a great mix of people. But it's funny how it's all interconnected because you mentioned Living on the Fault Line. And Living on the Fault Line features a song co-written with Michael McDonald and Carly Simon called You Belong to Me. So it's all, yeah. <laughs> it's all interrelated. The albums that you did with the Doobie Brothers, you know, Stampede in 75, prior to Mike McDonald joining the band, a song that everybody may know from Stampede was the Motown cover of Take Me In Your Arms, you know, Kim Weston cover. And then I didn't realize that it was you, Jeff Baxter, who brought Michael McDonald into the Doobie Brothers because you guys had met via Steely Dan.
1: Yeah, Michael was out with us in Steely Dan, touring with us. Then when Tom Johnson had had some serious health issues, we were kind of in a situation where we either had to move forward or stop. And I had suggested that Michael join the band, send him a one-way ticket (laughs) to New Orleans, where we had started to do a gig at the Louisiana State University and had to not appear. Came back the next week, got five encores, and that kind of changed the dynamic. And I'm sure that there are people that may have personal negative feelings towards that. But I would just say a great band is a great band. It didn't hurt Fleetwood Mac. It didn't hurt, there are a number of bands that decided to have another look at what they did. Right. And that doesn't denigrate or in any way undermine the quality of work done before.
0: Art is ever evolving. And as musicians... Should be. Yeah, I mean, it definitely should be. And music is art, and musicians are artists. And yeah, I mean, you won't hear any of that from me. I mean, I love the pre-Michael McDonald stuff. I love the Michael McDonald stuff. The next three albums that you were part of with Michael McDonald and Pat, And the rest of the guys in the Doobie Brothers were taking it to the streets in 76, living on the Fault Line, which we mentioned in 77. And then the big one was Minute by Minute in 79, of which you won your two Grammy Awards. We had Kenny Loggins as a guest on this program recently, and he talked about meeting Mike McDonald for the first time. And the first time they met, they wrote What a Fool Believes. What do you remember about hearing that song for the first time?
1: First time Michael played it, we were just hanging around at my house. And I thought, "Wow, the syncopation. I don't know where you came up with that idea, but it's very unique, very different, and is very compelling." I was pretty impressed.
0: Let's hear a little of Jeff and the Doobie Brothers on What a Fool Believes. Anyone who was alive in 1979, you know, that song is indelibly etched into their brains for the rest of time. So thank you for that.
1: It's indelibly etched <laughs> in my brain because the synthesizer parts, when we went out on the road, the and I'm not going to name the brand of synthesizer that Michael was using, never worked. <laughs> so it was my job. I brought this huge monster guitar synthesizer with me. It was my job to recreate all those parts, you know, live. That's okay. You know, you got to love it. That's what it's all about.
0: Well, you left the Doobie Brothers, as you mentioned, Mo kindly ripped up your contract following Jay Lasker's lead a few years earlier. But you left the Doobies, and then, you know, you were doing this amazing session work, and there are records, like I said before, you know, when talking about the Doobies as a studio group, Playing on other sessions, there are records that we all know that we may not know it's you. Like, literally, I didn't know, and I worked with her for a while. I did not know that Donna Summers Hot Stuff, that's you playing the guitar solo where Giorgio Moroder is telling you to do your thing.
1: That's correct. I called my assistant. My assistant said that I was too busy. Just couldn't do the sessions. And then I finally ended up talking to Giorgio. And Giorgio said, I'm doing this artist. Would you come in and play? And I said, who is it? Donna Summer. What kind of music? Disco. Call Jay Grid. I-, I don't want to do it. So he called Jay, I guess. And Jay said, call Skunk. So, okay. I said, I'll do it on one condition. Not that I'm laying the law down, but I had been doing so many disco records and it had just become less than stimulating. Let's put it that way. And he said, I want you to play whatever you want. And so when I ended up going into the studio and listening to the track, he said he wanted it to feel like rock and roll. Okay. Roll tape. And of course I had my $35 Burns guitar, you know, that I bought that day in guitar center for 35 bucks. And plug that in. And uh,
0: the rest is history.
1: And on Bad Girls, I had brought in the prototype guitar synthesizer that we were working on with Roland. And because Jurgen Kopfers, the engineer, and Harold Faltemeyer were both total tech heads. And they love this stuff. And so as soon as I started to play on it, Giorgio said, I want that. Wow. I said, OK, where do you want it? I want it on the solo on Bad Girls. Okay, roll tape.
0: (laughs) So, is that you playing the solo on Bad Girls?
1: Yeah, that's the guitar
0: synth. Right. I didn't realize that was you.
1: Sorry, boss. (laughs) I filled out my W4. You know how it is. Right. Hey, sorry, I got a possible 20. I gotta go. Love (laughs) you.
0: That's also you on the iconic 1981 recording of Dolly Parton's 9 to 5.
1: Yes. Wonderful lady. Probably the most angelic human being in the universe.
0: And still going strong. God bless her. Yes. So then, you know, I'd love to quote an article that was written about you from the San Diego Union Tribune in July 22nd. The quote is... The real-life story of how Jeff Baxter started a second career as a military consultant is so improbable a Hollywood screenwriter couldn't have dreamed it up. While helping a Los Angeles neighbor dig out from a mudslide in the late 1970s, Baxter learned that the neighbor, George Webb, was a retired engineer who had helped design the Sidewinder missile for the U.S. Navy. To thank Baxter for his assistance, the neighbor gifted him with subscriptions to the magazine's Aviation Week and to Jane's Defense. A (laughs) self-described autodidact, Baxter read both publications avidly and took a deep years-long dive into almost all things defense-related. As the music industry began to transition from analog to digital, he realized that the data compression algorithms and large-capacity storage devices that the military was using in its hardware and software had practical applications for recording music. That led him, intriguingly, to write a paper in which he posited that the U.S. military's Aegis ship-based anti-aircraft missile system could be expanded and converted into an overall missile defense system. Again, I can honestly say, Jeff, we've done, you know, maybe 50 or 60 of these interviews. Those words have never come out of my mouth before.
1: <laughs> Aegis, yes. <laughs> Elite defense. Absolutely. So, so
0: is, is that all true, what I just read? Yes.
1: Well, it, George Wendt, W-E-N-D-T. Not Webb, but WNDT, George. And the rest of that is very true. As a matter of fact, the senior aviation editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, who I met because he was a music fan. I met him when I was in London. A friend of ours introduced me. He gave me an article that talked about being able to track the space shuttle with an S-band radar, and I'm not going to go into, yes, as I always say, electric guitar, you know, radars is electric guitar on steroids. You understand the physics, you get all that. But radars are separated into different X-band, L-band, different parts of the frequency spectrum. So the S-band radar was used, somebody did an experiment and tracked the space shuttle. So I said, hmm, S-band radar is what Aegis uses for their fleet defense system. So I went to a buddy of mine, a steel guitar player at, at Propulsion Laboratories. I said, can you do some math for me? He said, yeah, okay. And I give him some stuff and he getting back and said, are you, let me get this straight. From what I can tell, you're looking to see if you can track something with a very, very small radar cross-section with an S-band radar. I said, John, that's correct. He says, well, you can't. Here's the math. Then I wrote the paper. Wow.
0: And that paper got into the hands of a couple of gentlemen, one who was the chair of the House Military Research and Development Subcommittee. And in 1995, that gentleman, Kurt Weldon, representative of Pennsylvania, nominated you to chair the Civilian Advisory Board for Ballistic Missile Defense, a congressional panel.
1: That's pretty much correct. Yeah, (laughs) I think he was the vice chairman of the Armed Services Committee and, yes, chairman of the Technology Committee, right, just when All of this, the whole concept of missile defense was beginning to germinate.
0: So, you know, I've read that you have security clearance. You know, this is real deal stuff. I also read that there was a Wall Street Journal article about you in 2005 where it talks about you were asked by the Pentagon to be the leader of the other side, the bad guys, in some war games. What was that like?
1: It was— Very exciting. And to this day, that is really one of my major foci, would be the word, in my day job endeavors is to be a professional red team,
0: Hmm. red teamer. Did you enjoy being a bad guy?
1: I did, and I still do. I currently (laughs) am still heavily involved in that.
0: Incredible. So it's almost like not to do a really bad job of a caption, but it's kind of like, you know, saving the world by day and rocking the stage at night.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I know you mentioned something about the improbability of my life, but Hedy Lamar came up with That's the concept true. of the Frequency Hopping Radio when she was working for the Brits. That is true. Paul Reed Smith, who builds some of the most beautiful and iconic guitars in the world has a company called Digital Harmonic that I, when he came to me with an idea, I took it right to the U S Navy and they were absolutely stunned and excited about it. So he's in the business, Paul Rivera from Rivera amplifiers, he's doing a lot of work for the air force and Brian may,
0: right? You know, Astrophysicist,
1: PhD, right? The partner of the gentleman that was his thesis guidance master was my partner at Lawrence Livermore, who then became the head of the physics department at the University of Rochester.
0: Wow. So, yeah. So, not as weird as it may seem. Yes. My dad, who was born in Manhattan in the 1920s, had nothing to do with music. But his best friend, growing up in the late 1920s in upper Manhattan, ended up being plucked. He was one of the kids in Manhattan who was plucked to work as a high school student on the Manhattan Project. Wow! And when he, this gentleman, big reveal to come in a second, but when this gentleman went to college, all the Manhattan Project stuff was classified. So he couldn't talk about what he knew but he knew a lot more than the physics professors at Columbia where he was in college and they failed him because they're like, you're making this stuff up. So they threw him out of college and he said, well, let me take some of that, you know, knowledge and apply it to audio recording and engineering. And that was Tom Dowd.
1: I know that story or I know part of that story. It's true. And it's, again, it just reinforces what we're saying is if you, Probably trying to categorize people and put them in a box is not such a good idea. Number one, it shows, usually shows some sort of fear that a person might have because they can't categorize people. And number two, it limits you as a person. Correct. And yeah, you're just reinforcing the idea. It's like in that there's a movie called The Day After Tomorrow when the protagonist tells his son, you told your professor that he was wrong and he flunked you. And he smiles, like, I'm proud of my son. Of course, he flunked him. But yeah, I've had that experience. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but they did the same thing to my daughter in college when she had written a paper on limited nuclear war. And of course, since she's my daughter, her sources are <laughs> Carlisle War College, Rand Corporation, all this stuff. And then the professor said, no, this, this stuff is not. No, this stuff is unacceptable. I did have a conversation with the president of the (laughs) university after that. But but yes, it's very, you know, it's amazing how people just have a hard time accepting. Now they don't. I mean, almost every physicist I ever worked with at Lawrence Livermore and at MIT Lincoln Labs was a musician. Dr. Edward Teller, who invented the hydrogen bomb, was a concert pianist. We uh, actually planned to do a recital together. He's a big Mozart fan, but then he had a stroke. Charlie Towns, Albert Einstein was a concert violinist. These guys all understand the relationship between physics, frequency, vibration, and music. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, some of the politicians are musicians as well. Talk about the Coalition of the Willing.
1: Yeah, that's a great band. Undersecretary of State for Military Affairs on bass, former ambassador to Japan on drums former ambassador from Hungary on guitar, former deputy director of the Department of Energy on guitar. I mean, you got to love it. And and Tony (laughs) Blinken, our our, our secretary of state, (laughs) sits in with us once in a while. Good fun.
0: So back to Speed of Heat, are you going to be out there playing these songs live for people?
1: Well, we did an East Coast tour, played in New York and Washington, D.C. Actually, somebody came up to me when we were in Washington, D.C., and, I, you know, I said, hey, if they drop a bomb on this place, you know, half the intelligence community and the Department of Defense is going to get vaporized. But it was a great tour. We had a lot of fun. Then we did a West Coast tour, and then we went to Japan. It was about a month ago. And we're going to do another tour in the Midwest in December.
0: Well, the record is great. It is called Speed of Heat and the 33-year wait for you know, the birth of this debut album, the debut solo album of Jeff Skunk Baxter is out now, and I highly recommend listening to it. Jeff, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, in relation to what we were talking about before, do you have a copy of the CD in front of you by any chance? I
0: don't. I was listening to oh. it on digital service providers, as they say.
1: Have a look at the cover, and what you'll notice is there's a bunch of equations in the background. Oh, wow the speed of heat is the thermodynamic aerodynamic phenomenon of what happens when a body moves to the atmosphere and approaches Mach one. So when I got a call about two months ago from a, a colleague at North of Grumman said, skunk, I said, uh, what's up? He said, I know what you're doing. Those equations on the album cover, those are all belong pressure wave. equations. Uh, I said, yep, you got it. So just want to make sure that we keep this connection Connected.
0: Well, you know, we all have heard of the speed of sound, and we all have heard of the speed of light. And now we have heard, thanks to you, of Speed of Heat.
1: Well, thank you for your hospitality. I, I'm amazed anybody cares what I have to say. You're very kind.
0: Well, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks a lot. We'll see you soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot to Jeff Skunk Baxter for joining us this week. You can stay connected with Jeff at his website, jeffskunkbaxter.com, where you can link from there to all of his social media, as well as learn more about his upcoming appearances and tour dates. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of pure tone music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganvarg with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Willie Fastenow, Catherine Hoppe, Kayla Flores, Zach Kornhauser, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high school.